This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. You're listening to the Church Boys Free Fall Q&A. It's Billy Hollowell. Welcome to the Church Boys. And I'm here with Dr. Michael S. Heiser today. He's the author of The Unseen Realm and Supernatural. How are you doing today? Very good. Thanks for having me. Well, so thanks for coming on. I I always love this time of year. Uh, I think it's always a fun and interesting time. Everyone's getting ready to celebrate Halloween. And with that <clears throat> comes the discussion of good and evil. And you get into a lot of really interesting theological discussions, even though Halloween for most Americans is just sort of a lighthearted, fun holiday. It's a good opportunity to talk about uh, these unseen things, as you've covered in uh, in your book. So let's just dive and jump right in on this issue of demons, because, you know, Christians, I think a lot of Christians have this sense of angels and demons and demons being just fallen angels who have turned bad and used their free will to make um, bad and negative choices against God. What, when we talk about the tradition of demons and where that whole idea comes from, what are some of the things in your view that people get wrong about that? Yeah, well, I, it, it might surprise a lot of people who are familiar with the Bible, who have read it uh, even a little bit, to know that the Bible never offers a point-blank explanation for where demons come from. And so a lot of what we think about that is really filtered through church tradition. You mentioned the fallen angels idea. Well, that raises the question, well, when did they fall? And if you go back, you know, in the early chapters of Genesis, you never see anything like this, even though people sort of try to throw it in in places. Because, hey, we have to have that, don't we? And the closest you get is actually at the end of the Bible, Revelation 12, where it talks about a war in heaven and and angels being cast down. But if you actually read Revelation 12, that discussion, that event, is associated with the first coming of Jesus. So nothing primeval. Demons were around a long time uh, before that. But if you you look in the Old Testament, there's not, again, a clear answer to this. I, I, however, think there is uh, an answer to it. Uh, it's not, you know, quite obvious, but that's one of the things I, I get at in my book. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, it, it's sort of, <clears throat> it's sort of fascinating to me because that's sort of the, that's the understanding that most, that most people have. Um, and I, I feel like there are some things about the Bible that sort of pop up that are like this, where people will say, well, no, you guys have had this wrong um, the, in, the entire time. And, and so this is one of those topics that I think is, Intriguing. Before before we dive deeper, so wh- when somebody says um, they've had an experience with a, a demon of some sort, and you hear this all the time, and there have been even in the last couple of years really uh, credible, and what I mean by credible is cases in which there is documentation, government documentation, claims of bizarre things happening. Wh- when somebody says that, that they've had an encounter like that, what is your reaction to a claim like that? Yeah, my, my reaction is that it's entirely possible, because I'm not a, a philosophical or theological materialist. In other words, a lot of people today, uh, I guess I think we've been conditioned by the Enlightenment and our scientific technological culture to assume that, hey, unless it's embodied, unless I can touch it, unless I can, you know, unless it's made of matter, some material thing, then it can't be real. 
that isn't the worldview not only that, that the Bible presents, the Bible is certainly counter to that, but you know, just across the board, uh, in, in terms of ancient religions and even modern experience, uh, you get things uh, that, that happen to real people that really sort of defy that that idea, that materialist idea. So you either have to assume that everybody simultaneously across the world and across time is either mistaken or lying, or you have to sort of entertain the thought that, well, you know, maybe maybe the materialist approach isn't coherent. Uh, maybe there is a reality beyond, again, what we sort of define as the physical or the material. So I would be predisposed, you know, at the outset to say, well, you know, maybe what you're describing to me actually happened, and we are dealing with a, a disembodied spirit or some some spiritual reality that doesn't fit into the scientific paradigm. Now, what about possession, um, infestation, those sorts of terms that people use? Are those things that you would deem possible? Yeah, I think I think possession is possible, even even. The, you know, practicing occultists or practicing Satanists, or I would put practicing polytheists into this lump as well, uh, sort of affirm the notion that these sort of situations not only occur, but they really have to be solicited in some way. In other words, the person has to uh, invite uh, whatever, you know, the, the end result is, you know, a demonic possession or something like this. It's not random. There has to be some sort of solicitation like a Ouija board or something. Some would a Ouija like board would a Ouija board be something that would open a window? Something like that, trying to reach out in some way. Yeah, you know, I personally don't think there's anything to the to the cardboard and the plastic. You know, with a Ouija board, but what it does is it it, it demonstrates or it 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 sort of provides an outlet for the person who again initiates such solicitation. You know, with the intent. Uh, of inviting an external supernatural power uh, into their lives. That, for that reason, I think you know there is some danger to it. Not necessarily the product itself. So, if somebody now, okay, so you know, following the line of of a of a, a demon, you know, this this quote unquote demon, an experience with that. If not a fallen angel, what are what exactly are people experiencing in your view? Well, if if we go. If, if we talk about the Gospels, again, what, what the, the New Testament refers to as demons, uh, Jewish texts uh, in, in between the time of, of the Old and New Testament actually have a very clear answer for this, and that is demons are the disembodied spirits of the dead Nephilim uh, from Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the, the dead giants of, of the uh, pre-flood era and, and, and the post-flood era as well. Now, that sounds kind of kind of crazy, like, well... Where is that in the Bible? You actually, if, if you track along that idea uh, in Jewish texts, the, the story in, in intertestamental literature is that the sons of God, Genesis 6, you know, sin, they fall, they transgress the boundary of heaven and earth by cohabiting with women. And in the end, they are punished, they are sentenced to the abyss, you know, to the, to the underworld. Well, you actually get traces of that idea in the Old Testament, that there are bad guys that happen to be giants, disembodied spirits of giants in the underworld. They're called Rephaim in the Old Testament. So you, you have this little snippet of the, the more full-blown idea later on, and those beings 
uh, seek re-embodiment. And so those are actually the demons. This is the Jewish explanation for demons that you get in the New Testament period uh, that Jesus is casting out of people. And, you know, that, that's, so that's really interesting. And I have heard, I have heard this before and it's, you don't hear it a lot in Christian circles. I mean, look, you don't really hear a lot of discussion about demons in a lot of Christian circles that, you know, it's, I feel like it's something that in a lot, and, and at least the evangelical churches I've gone to has not really been addressed. It's not like it's being denied, but it's not being talked about. There aren't, I mean, I've never seen a pastor attempt any sort of yeah. deliverance or anything like that. Um, obviously, some churches do. Why do you think, and maybe I'm wrong, and if I'm wrong, tell me, why do you think a lot of churches sort of shy away from or don't talk about some of these things as much as others do? Well, you, you get it in the charismatic wing uh, of, of the Christian church, but I think more broadly, and you brought up uh, evangelicalism, I think, you know, I hate to say it this way, but, but evangelical Christians tend to be selectively supernatural. Uh, yeah, we embrace Jesus as, as you know God in the flesh and the Trinity and angels and demons and Satan, but that that's about it. And and what people think they know about the unseen world, the supernatural world, is has really been filtered to them through Christian tradition and even things like Milton's Paradise Lost. It, it's very unusual uh, that someone has a really deep knowledge of the supernatural world that the biblical writers actually had in their own head, and that's. That's essentially why I wrote uh, both books, Unseen Realm and Supernatural. Supernatural is sort of a distillation of Unseen Realm. Unseen Realm is an, an academic book, whereas Supernatural is just the core ideas. And, and what the whole point of, of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get the ancient writer in the modern Christian's head so that you know, you know, Christians are able to read the Bible, and really anybody who, who you know reads my books would be able to read the Bible the way the ancient readers did, the way the ancient writers were thinking. To have them in your head, and then embrace, you know, how, how does how does embracing this worldview that we would sort of look at as pre-modern today, uh, how does that impact how we look at ourselves and what our life is really about? The intersection of the supernatural world with our world. And that, that's kind of a chore because, you know, we have, um, you know, we have a situation where Christians today just are not, you know, tracking on these things because they have things filtered to them through uh, a tradition. So a lot of it sounds new, but it's, it's all there. And the interesting thing is you'll have a lot of people say, you know, about the Nephilim, about demons in general, well, that just sounds crazy, what's wrong with you, you know, you'll you'll have those sorts of critiques, and it, it always intrigues me because it's sort of like, well, nobody's really been able to, you know, if you're approaching the world from a position of not really believing in anything, nobody's really been able to explain why we exist, why are we here, what is the world, what is the universe, all of these things that on, on their face, when you really sit down and think about it, are also sort of bizarre, um, yeah, mere existence. I, I like to ask, you know, Christians. Well, what what's so normal about the Virgin Birth? Right. <laughs> you know, what's so normal about a Trinity? Again, but, but Christians, uh, they they embrace these ideas because, frankly, if you don't, what are we even talking about Christianity for? Right. So you know, they're selectively supernatural, and, and again, I'm just past the point personally as a biblical scholar and a writer, I'm no longer going to protect people from their Bible. Uh, this is, this is the, the book that you assign inspired status to. You consider it sacred. 
And if you do that, well, what, doesn't it make sense for you to read it, again, through the eyes of the ancient writer who produced it and, and his, his own original audience? So that, that's what I'm trying to do. I, I like to use the illustration of a small group Bible study because we all know how these things work. <clears throat> you know, you have, everybody sits around in a circle, hey, what does this verse mean to you? What do you think it means? So on and so forth. Well, if you had somebody from the second millennium B.C., sitting in that room, an ancient Israelite, when you got to that guy, his answer to the question of, well, what does this weird passage mean, is going to be so different than any, anything that anybody else is going to say. Why? Because he comes from a different time and a different place. Lo and behold, the time and the place that produced this thing that we call the Bible. But we, we are trained as Christians to think that the right context for interpreting the Bible is our own or the Reformation, or the Catholic Church, or, you know, modern evangelicalism, all those contexts are actually alien to the Bible. They're foreign. They post-date it by centuries and even millennia. So it, it actually is sort of a different tack to say, look, let's try to read this thing through the eyes of an ancient person. Yeah, that, and that's interesting. I, I don't think that anybody spends enough time trying to do that. I mean, that that is, it's it's all about applying to now without understanding the context of, you know, even the, the verse, the least of these, you know, the, the whole debate over what the least of these is actually saying. Is it talking about the poor? Is it talking about um, Christians who, who, you know, were persecuted? Um, you know, that most people talk about it in in terms of talking about the poor, whereas it seems like when you put it into context, there's a good debate to be had that that may not necessarily be ex what's going on there. Um, I guess, just to backtrack a little bit on, on the demon discussion specifically, how do you then differentiate demons from Satan? Because, you know, really, it, it seems like when you talk about angels and all that, you're sort of saying, well, Satan's a fallen angel, and Satan's just like every other demon. Yeah, I mean, you, you never... You never actually have, you know, Satan call the fallen angel. There, there's another one right there. Um, you know, they, again, we, we accrue these traditions to these, these entities or these figures, you know, in, in the biblical story. Uh, I think Satan, again, the, the person we, we think of as the devil in the New Testament, sort of gets primacy of place, you know, in, in, the, in the hall of shame or the list of bad guys because he was the first rebel. Uh, so he, he was the first one that, that either was courageous enough or dumb enough uh, to oppose what God was trying to do with this thing we call salvation history, the plan of God, uh, to have you know, heaven meet earth. Of course, originally in the biblical story, that was Eden. So he's the first one that gets in the way of that and, of course, is punished for it. He's cast down uh, in, in Genesis 1 and a few other passages. Well, that doesn't mean that he is of the same character or nature, you know, he's not the same ontologically necessary, necessarily as the other guys. We just sort of assume that as we read through the Bible, and I would say actually as we get the Bible filtered to us, again, through tradition. They're all, you know, they're divine beings, demons and Satan. Uh, again, Satan gets the primacy of place. Whether he is more powerful, I think, would be the case, because if, if we can throw a biblical term at uh, Satan, he would have been an Elohim in Old Testament parlance. Elohim just means a being that inhabits the spiritual world, or the, dis the disembodied spiritual world. Whereas demons, again, are the result of the disembodied spirits of 
you know, the, the Nephilim, the giant clans. And so there is a little bit of a lesser sense to them uh, because of, of their point of origin as opposed to Satan's. So I, w- I would, in my books, I would talk about these different categories that way. In other words, I try to restrict the discussion to what Scripture actually says as opposed to what, you know, priests or, or Christian thinkers you know, throughout history have said about these things. Because, to be honest with you, as, as brilliant as a guy like Augustine was, he didn't know Hebrew. So I don't know how he's handling the Old Testament. He's, he's doing it through a translation. And he lives not only centuries, but with respect to the Old Testament. He is millennia beyond in time to the Old Testament. So he is not a good source for interpreting the Old Testament in its original context. You have to go back to that world. And there are ways you can do that through resources you know, that we have to, to get that worldview in your head. And what I'm trying to do in these books is is do that a little bit for people to sort of start them down that path to again read scripture through ancient eyes. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. So do do angels have free will then? <laughs> I have all these loaded questions well, for I, you. I, I think I think they definitely do I, because we do as well. But see, I, here's another point of difference with me: the, the, the plurals, the plural language in Genesis one twenty six. Let us create mm-hmm. humankind in our image, and then it switches to the singular in the next verse when God actually creates. So God created humankind in His image, you know, so on and so forth. Well, why the plurals? It's really not that much of a conundrum. That Christian tradition says, oh, well, that must be a reference to the Trinity. Well, there's nothing that restricts it to three there. All it is is God speaking to a group. Well, what group existed before the the creation of humanity? Well, if you look over in Job 38, that group is the sons of God, the heavenly host. So all you have in Genesis 1 is God announcing to his heavenly host, hey, i got a great idea. Let's, let us, let's create humankind in our image. But then when God actually does it, he only creates them in his image. The plural links them the heavenly host, to us in some way, and to God. So you get into this idea of imaging, and all that refers to is representing God because we share God's, some of God's attributes, the communicable attributes of systematic theology is the, the term they like to use. Well, think about that. How could we image God? How could we represent God if we did not have free will? Yeah. Because God is not a robot. Free will is an essentially shared attribute that we have and that members of the heavenly host have. And the plural language links us together in some way. Now, we represent God on earth, that was our domain, and they represent God in the spiritual realm. That's the domain they were created in. So it's not really a conundrum, but it's amazing how little thought is actually put into that. And it's actually quite profound, because... Then you have divine beings and human beings who are free to act, free to make decisions, and God wants them to cooperatively participate in the governance of, of Earth, caring for the Earth, and you know, making the rest of the Earth like Eden back in the, in the in the Genesis story, and you know, advancing the kingdom of God. Now it changes a little bit post you know Christianity. But you have the same thing in the spirit world. God wants participation. That, that's just what he likes. He wants to share the task and also share the benefit and the enjoyment. 
of his creation with his creatures. So it has lots of profound implications, again, that I, I get into in the book, because this helps us think about, really, the intentionality of our lives. You know, that there's, there's a point, you know, to all this, and it's actually linked with the unseen world. Um, well, this is, I mean, this has been great. And I, now I want to have you back five other times to, to talk about this. But I guess my, my last question for you, uh, what do you say to the people who say to you, you're out of your mind, you're crazy, none of this is real? I would say all of this proceeds along very simple presumptions. The first one is, why is there something rather than nothing? I mean, these big ideas of, of is there a God or not? Which view has greater explanatory power. And for millennia, people have, you know, philosophers, you don't even have to have religion involved in this at all. Just the logical coherence of having a God as opposed to not has won the day in terms of, again, just logic. Well, so if you get past that hurdle, is there a God or not? Okay, okay, we would agree that it's coherent to think there's a God. Well, if there is a God, can he actually do anything? You know, would he actually be interested in being involved in his creation? Well, I would say certainly why, because we do, by analogy, we create things and we're interested to see what happens to them. We don't just sit around and we, and we exercise our intelligence. All these, these things are very simple ideas, and, you, and if you keep you know, kicking that can down the road, well, then ideas like God intervening in human history make sense. If the idea that God could actually become a man, well, why couldn't he? In other words, who, who shuts that door on God? So they're very simple ideas whose logical coherence has been tested ever since people have been thinking about it, and it has not been overturned, and it has won the day in the minds of most intelligent people. Yeah, no, it, and I think that is sort of the, the fascinating piece of, of the debate, is how many people... I mean, how many people's conversion stories have there been? How many people, and look, you have deconversion stories too, but people who it just clicks for them and it starts to make sense. But I think at the very least, the question of who God is and is there a God and all that, it's hard to walk away. I, I always struggle with the atheist perspective. It's hard to walk away saying there's nothing beyond now um, and beyond, you know. Oh, and, and you're, you're forced, as, as much as they resist this proposition, you are forced to affirm the spontaneous generation of matter. Now, I, I know, you know, physicists try to cheat here, but there are other physicists who hold them to, t you know, to hold them accountable. They take them to task and say, look, what you've just articulated here, if you want to deny the Big Bang, is, okay, you have a self-replicating universe. Well, that's wonderful. How did that get started? You know, it, it, it just, it's an infinite regress that tries to escape from the very logical conclusion that every effect has a cause. And this is just simple logic that, you know, I didn't invent, Christians didn't invent. It's, it's just part of clear thinking. And I, I just have to chuckle. You know, when I, when I get the scientists, you know, oh, well, you can't really be a believer in God and be a real scientist. Well, when I was in grad school at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, I went to a campus church there, and we were dominated by faculty from the hard sciences. We had the head of botany, we had the head of environmental studies, we had two research, research physicists, we had entomologists. I mean, we were just dominated by people, mostly faculty members in the hard sciences. And so I, I just have to laugh. You know, you are underexposed, really, to reality if you think that science cancels out the belief in God.
Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's a fascinating discussion, and I think even there was a Pew poll out that recently showed, I think in the past week, that Americans don't see that conflict as much as people think they do in terms of science and religion and all that, that it's not as pronounced as, as many people as the media makes it seem. So I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of discussion to be had around this, and I appreciate you taking the time coming on. We'll make sure we link out uh, to your books and, and get some people over to, to check them out. And uh, thanks again for your time. Yep, thank you. Church Boy.